0: Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, good evening. Thank you for being with us at the beginning of another Alan Jones week here on ADH, I think I can read your mood. Basically, we are fed up with some of the rubbish that's being dished out to us by government. You see, you can't argue with stupid people. When a stupid person is concerned, he starts behaving irrationally. The Energy Minister Bowen is a very stupid man with a capital S, but worse, he's arrogant. Now he's saying that the proposal to convert coal-fired power sites into nuclear small modular reactors would cost, this is the Dutton proposal, $387 billion. Well, as I'll indicate later, he's been bashed up by his own people. In short, he's made a fool of himself. Let me say first on energy, you can't trust a word that Bowen says. One of the weaknesses of parliamentary democracy is that there is no debate. Bowen stands in the parliament and on energy talks rubbish, dishonesty. But if an MP would interrupt and identify the rubbish, he gets two warnings from the speaker and then he's turfed out. We suffer from no healthy exchange of views. And of course, Bowen won't come on this program because at heart, he's a hater. He hates what his opponents say. Ted O'Brien does a fairly good job, needs a bit more homework though, Ted, uh, as spokesman for the opposition on climate change and energy. And he said last week, Labor promised a green dream, but is delivering a dark nightmare. Labor talks of climate wars, new industrial revolutions and becoming a superpower. But what counts is delivering outcomes The scoreboard shows that Labor is failing on all fronts when it comes to climate and energy. Now, it is nonsense that we are one of the world's leading producers of uranium. We export it so that countries without resources of coal and gas can have cheap and clean energy. Yet we have a ban on using our own uranium. Bob Hawke said ages ago that ban should be lifted. It's in legislation, enshrined in legislation. Well, the lefties in the Labor Party hate the thought What we have to get into our sometimes thick heads though, is that renewable energy cannot power the nation. Even if we were to get net zero carbon dioxide, you know my thoughts about carbon dioxide, there's your biggest hoax, a gas that is 0.04% of the atmosphere allegedly all this damage. But that aside, as I speak to you tonight, coal fired power, well, particularly if you're in Sydney, it's been an astonishingly hot day, Coal-fired power is providing up to 80% of our energy needs. Now, remember, Net Zero Australia, note the title. This outfit actually are in favour of net zero carbon dioxide. But they said a couple of months ago, are you listening, Bulldust Bowen? Climate policy remains in the grip of an intelligentsia, oh, that's flattering Bowen, that lacks the wisdom to recognise the boundaries of its own ignorance. Well, Bowen's boasting about the cost of converting to nuclear some made up figure of $387 billion. I'll have more on that in a moment. But Net Zero Australia says, we'll have to find 1.5 trillion by 2030 to meet 2050 green targets, 1.5 trillion. Now remember, all because this dreadful carbon dioxide is 0.04% of the atmosphere. And along the way by 2030, even according to Bowen, We'll need 22,500 watt solar panels every day, 22,000 every day for the next seven years. Of course, when they're no longer operative, no one can tell us where these solar panels will go, but we'll also need 47 megawatt wind turbines every month, 40. This is why Bowen is attacking Dutton over nuclear power. The bloke is in a corner, desperate and anxious and staring at failure, but like The Voice. Then he'd have to get the renewable energy to the grid. Oh, he'd need ten to 20,000 kilometres of transmission lines. Where does he get them? Oh, compulsorily acquire productive land from farmers. Good luck. This bloke is a political madman, Bowen. One point about the opposition. In prosecuting the nuclear argument, we're talking about something years down the track. We've got to have the guts to come out and say, in order to keep the lights on and business going, we're not going to demonise coal and gas. That's for the here and now today. Stop pandering to minorities. Peter Dutton was a cop before he became a politician. He used to arrest vandals, people who broke into other people's homes and stole their cars. But Peter Dutton is currently sitting in the House of Representatives, facing across the dispatch box, economic vandals. Not destroying one home or stealing one car, but stealing the wealth and future of all of us. Peter Dutton, please arrest the political vandals. Then, of course, we're being warned of a sweltering El Nino summer, which will trigger higher power prices and the threat of blackouts. Isn't this common sense? We're taking coal-fired power out of the electricity grid with nothing to replace it. And we're told the hot weather will increase the demand from households and businesses, and that will lift electricity prices. Of course it will. A shortage of bananas, but a demand for bananas, the price goes up. A shortage of electricity, the demand increases, the price goes up. David Falou is the chair of Tomago Aluminium, the nation's largest smelter and biggest single consumer of electricity. He said in El Niño, And we've had this today from the Bureau of Meteorology. They've announced, oh, yes, we've got an El Nino coming. They love all this alarm and stuff. It's called weather. He said it would complicate a market already reeling from the chaos, chaos of our electricity market transition. He called it chaos. Do you think this bloke from Tomago Smelter knows more than Bowen? When he says the real problem is having a reliable and competitively priced energy market. Andrew Richards is the chief executive of the Energy Users Association of Australia. He's at the coalface, to use an appropriate word. He says that for businesses, higher power bills are a grave concern, grave concern. We're heading out the back door, I'm telling you. You can't do anything without energy. I've said before, you're watching some pictures of me on your TV. Energy is providing those pictures. I'm sitting at this desk, a truck powered by fossil fuels brought the desk here. You'll have a meal tonight, meat and veg. They didn't drop into the supermarket. A truck powered by fossil fuels brought them to the supermarket. The energy price goes up, so will everything else. It's called cost of living. So in relation to this energy crisis, Andrew Richards, the chief executive of the Energy Users Association of Australia says, it's one of the top three things, if not the top thing we are concerned about. Prices are high and likely to stay high for some time Our members are concerned if the summer is anything like the European summer, well, it's going to be a ripper, to say the least. We are clearly concerned about cost," unquote. Well, I don't think Australians understand that we have a legislated commitment. That is, it's at law. It's the law, the Parliament passed it, that 80% of electricity by 2030 must come from renewable energy. But according to figures released last week, renewable energy is at best, at best, currently 40% of the mix, seven years to go. The bulk of our coal fleet will be gone by 2035. Every month we learn that the Reserve Bank thinks about jacking up interest rates to bring down inflation. But energy costs are a major contributor to inflation. So you are paying more for your energy and more for your money, which means a nation under Albanese and Bowen, going backwards. And then there's immigration and a housing crisis. The Bureau of Statistics released figures earlier this month showing that on a per capita basis, every voting Australian can tell you this, the same amount of money is buying less. In other words, the average Australian is getting poorer and poorer, and yet, a record 353,670 permanent and long-term migrants moved into Australia in the year to June 30 this year. The highest figure ever recorded for a financial year, 353,670. I mean, this helps the big corporations, the banks, more people to spend, more people to bank, more people to buy, the retailers and the developers, the supermarkets, they love it, but the rest of Australia are losers. I mean, if over 350,000 new arrivals come in one year, where do they live? Rental rental prices go up. Housing prices go up. Where do they go to school? What extra demands are placed on hospitals and roads? We don't have the infrastructure. A recipe for going backwards. Cost of living and quality of life continue to worsen. I say it here on ADH as it is. This is Australia under Al Bowen, Chalmers and Bowen going backwards. And as the media in America protects Biden, so the media here either don't see it or don't want to know it. Well, we see it and we will say it. You're watching ADH, I'm Alan Jones. Look, may I join with you seriously and emphatically saying that I am fed up to the back teeth with all this stuff about the voice and why we're almost second-class citizens if we dare to think about voting no. Quite simply, What makes me sick and tired of this is the rank ingratitude, not of Indigenous Australians, the ingratitude of Indigenous activists. Not a thank you for the fact that year after year, Australians put their hand in their pockets via taxes to provide for Indigenous Australians. Where does the money go? 55% of Australia is under native title. The mining royalties go to Indigenous Australians. Where the hell does that money go? And the S campaign is now using John Farnham's You're The Voice. Well, the lyrics of the song say, try and understand it. I wish we could. I was with Indigenous Australians on Friday. They didn't understand it. Our country's got 3,352 registered Aboriginal corporations. What is this lie about that we need a voice? The Prime Minister already has an Indigenous Advisory Council. That is a voice to the Prime Minister himself. There are more than 30 land councils. There's a thing called the Council of Peaks, which represents 70 Aboriginal corporations. Pardon the language, but how many bloody voices do you want, you ungrateful militant activists? We provide $40,000 million of hard-earned cash every year to close the gap, $40 billion. The Aboriginal population is officially 3.8%. There are 11 Aboriginal MPs in the parliament, all with a voice, representing 4.8% of the parliament. Voices and money everywhere. Look at the Harbour Bridge. An Aboriginal flag flies enjoying equivalence with the national flag. And no one seems to have the guts to say this is ridiculous. A symbol of a minority enjoying parity with a flag that represents all of Australia. If Indigenous Australians are part of Australia, they are represented by the national flag. Take the Aboriginal flag down, but oh no, The militant minority, the ungrateful minority say, the Australian flag, according to the Uluru Statement from the Heart, symbolises the injustices of colonisation. So what do we do? Roll over and cop it? Roll over and surrender? Oh, we're a tough lot, aren't we? Just watch our ABC. They now don't broadcast a story from Goulburn, but rather from Bourbon. Yeah, change the place names to accommodate a handful of activists. Rank-and-file Aboriginals, to whom I speak, think this is ridiculous. We don't have stories from Melbourne. We cross to a reporter in Nam. Remember, Lydia Thorpe doesn't want a voice. She doesn't even want a treaty. She wants sovereignty. Are we going to roll over and cop all this stuff or emphatically vote no? Recently, we were told that Indigenous Australians and First Nations people, whomever they are, we have no definitions, but they're from across the globe. They're going to be offered ticket discounts of up to $170 under new mob ticks concessions launched by the nation's elite ballet, musical arts and cultural sporting bodies and institutions. Special mob discounts of up to 80% for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, Maori, Pacific Islanders and other First Nations people. But there was no nation until we were colonised, but that's for another day. All this bribery in the run-up to a referendum. No proof of eligibility is required to access the tickets, and those who identify as a certain race or ethnic group will have their details kept confidential. Support for the referendum sinks, so out comes the money. So who's in this gig of discounts of up to 80%? Sydney Opera House, Australian Ballet, National Gallery of Australia. Hey, get in on here. Just say you're in. Here. Hello, I'm Indigenous. I need the 80% discount. Sydney and Melbourne symphony orchestras, the Australian Tennis Open, music festivals. Mr Albanese boasted in the parliament that quote, every major business in Australia is supporting the ES campaign and he named them. Woolworths, Coles, Telstra, BHP, Rio Tinto, the Business Council of Australia, the AFL, the NRL, Rugby Australia, Netball Australia, We're in the middle of a cost of living crisis and these big corporations purport to speak on behalf of their organisations at a time when the distrust of the corporate sector is at record levels, witness Qantas. All of this provides a powerful reason why we should vote no. And when the vote comes in and the referendum is defeated, the boards of those corporations should have the decency to do what the British Prime Minister David Cameron did when he lost the Brexit vote, resign. One writer, Professor David Barton, has had the guts to speak the truth. He argues that what passes as so-called Aboriginal culture is an invention of the last 50 years. Dr Barton, Professor David Barton, has written, quote, The Aboriginal industry is chock full of ill-informed urban myth-makers and illusionists. This cast of urges and deluded pretenders giving rise to the patronising insistence on the uniqueness of Aboriginal knowledge about everything from agriculture and fish farms, as in Bruce Pascoe, water and fire management, as in cultural burning, to Aboriginal art, fashion, and even astronomy. Not to mention Ernie Dingo's thoroughly, this is what he said, not to mention Ernie Dingo's thoroughly overdone, welcome to country. Writes Professor Barton, this is mostly snake oil fakery an effort to convince contemporary Australians that the Aborigines of old was something they clearly never were." Unquote. Professor Barton continues, "'Meanwhile, the recent invention, exaggeration, distortion, and misrepresentation of the alleged frontier wars serves as a made-to-order replacement history, intended to raise the status of Aboriginal people and degrade that of settlers. The goal,' he says, Professor Barton, is an attempt to paint paint a genocidal racism as Australia's original sin. Professor Barton goes on with the guts to say it as it is, quote, self-determination means we will do what we like and you can pay for it. Self-determination is about undermining white fella institutions, judiciaries, organisations and bureaucracies. Examples of self-determination can be found in the ban on climbing Ayers Rock, Uluru, Mount Warning, Wollombin, Mount Gillan and many Grampian climbs all for ill-defined or unexplained cultural reasons. Australian place names are also being rapidly overwritten, he says, with most likely made up Aboriginal names. He says, all this is about claims to ownership, to sovereignty. These changes should not be mistaken for deference to Aboriginal culture. It is no more, no less, than an insidious takeover. Says Professor Barton, what we are experiencing here is cultural guerrilla warfare, the picking off of one target after the other. He says, don't believe it. Look no further than what has happened in New Zealand, unquote. I'll be talking again tomorrow night to the former New Zealand Deputy Prime Minister, Winston Peters, about just this. Australians have a simple challenge if they have the stomach and the guts to embrace it. We want to acknowledge the wanderers, the convicts, the migrants who survived a harsh existence, but who were here, well, who knows, 40 to 60,000 years ago. We acknowledge them. No medicine, no writing, no agriculture, no animal husbandry, no sailing ships, no stone buildings, and they survived. And then British institutions brought us science and philosophy construction, British law, fossil fuel energy, the enlightened inspiration of Renaissance thinking, political leaders past and present, whose decisions helped us with lifestyle advantages and innovation in science and mining, agriculture, manufacturing, medicine, literature and education. Our military forces who protected our freedoms and our way of life. Grateful Australians thank all of those people for what they did to our country. The whinging, whining, ungrateful minority of Aboriginal activists who've become well-educated and well-paid should be told quite simply, promote the yes case, but not with taxpayers' money. By all means, argue your position, but give an open commitment that without violence and retribution, you will accept the outcome if as it is bound to be an emphatic no. And if you haven't the decency to stop vilifying those who disagree with you, At least find the decency to express gratitude for the education that you've received and the opportunities that have come with it. And try to understand that Australians are mystified as why you Aboriginal activists seem to hate this country so much. Well, look, it is undeniable, isn't it, that whatever the motives, and to be fair, they may have been well-intentioned, the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, has now perhaps irreparably divided the nation on the issue that we all hoped was well into the past, race. I speak at a lot of functions. I express my genuine concern about the impact all this is having on our children. Your kids are being taught directly or indirectly that we are a racist nation, that we don't own the land we live on, that the world will end because of climate change, and therefore there is no hope for them, that a boy can become a girl, a girl can become a boy, and not a political voice, is raised against any of this. The damage to our young people is monumental. If I tipped my garbage into Sydney Harbour, I would be arrested for environmental pollution. But no political so-called leader seems to care about the pollution of young people's minds. It's fair to say that the educational focus in the classroom has shifted away from what is necessary in education and it's shifted to all of these political trends. Children will tell you, These things are being discussed if not taught in class. Yet here we are with NAPLAN results for years three, five, seven and nine that should shock and appall us all, but hardly a murmur from government. And we fund this. Australian students are underperforming. Their minds are on other things. A young 18 year old spoke to me about having a girlfriend with whom after some time in the relationship, he said, well, we might have sex. He then asked me if we broke off the relationship, Could that girl come back in three years' time and allege rape? How do you answer that stuff? Their minds, this is the Brittany Higgins stuff, isn't it? Their minds are full of it. Racism, climate change, they know about welcome to country, boys becoming girls, girls becoming boys, the very danger of having a relationship. One headline recently about these young children where suicide rates are now higher than they've ever been, one headline said, one third of Australian students fail to meet the new NAPLAN benchmark, one third. Another one said a $662 billion debacle, one in three kids fails NAPLAN literacy and numeracy. We're pumping $662 billion into primary education. The OECD has observed that Australia is one of the few countries with no fixed share of school instruction time devoted to reading, writing, literature and maths. Is any of that discussed? We've got a Know All Education Minister, Jason Clare, another one who won't appear on this program, the rudest staff we have ever encountered in any ministerial office. And the OECD is saying that we're one of the few countries with no fixed share of school instruction time devoted to reading, writing, literature and maths. What then, you ask, is being taught. Australia's former chief scientist, Alan Finkel, has weighed in, demanding more focus on phonics-based teaching in reading and writing in primary school, as well as the basics of mathematics. And he says, and I quote, these are muscle memory subjects. You need to know early muscle memory. In other words, rote learning of spelling, of tables, of poetry. Dr Finkel said in literacy, not teaching phonics, has been a serious problem because we have a generation that hasn't been taught effectively how to read. And he said, good luck picking up mathematics at university for a subject like engineering or architecture if you didn't learn it at school. Well, we're spending billions of dollars on education and a report by Equity Economics calculates $12 billion in lost lifetime earnings for children who fail to master reading and writing. Who was addressing this scandal? Well then, of course, there's the absence of discipline in the classroom, with a rising number of teachers in New South Wales alone suffering from psychological damage relating to work pressure, bullying, and exposure to violence in schools. The total bill for teacher injuries has almost tripled in six years. 14 teachers a week lodging workers' compensation claims last year, 14 a week after suffering mental disorder as a result of their work in schools. 11 injuries a week in schools after staff are whipped with moving objects. This is our educational environment. The education system's failed despite 15 years of NAPLAN testing and 10 years of alleged needs-based funding increases. Pour money into it and the problem gets worse. Decades of dodgy teaching methods and a cluttered curriculum. And what do we have to show for it? Well, why am I telling you this? Students need explicit instruction in the right things. Old school teaching that should involve rote learning and repetition. Well, now the kids are facing this modern environment about the voice. Dr Kevin Donnelly is a senior fellow at the Australian Catholic University. He writes powerfully and compellingly about this education crisis, but no one seems to listen. Not a word is uttered about what is being taught or not taught in the classroom, which brings us to the voice. Children are taught that this is a simple, warm, fuzzy thing. Of course, there should be this kind of recognition in the Constitution. It should have happened long ago. And like climate change, welcome to country, biology, all based on myth-making. Let me be blunt. Many of our children are being taught untruths. Dr. Kevin Donnelly joins me. Kevin, thank you for your time. I would normally talk to you about the crisis in education and you write splendidly on it, I might say, born out of these results and in spite of billions of dollars being spent. But you made the simple point about what is not taught. And I quote you, Indigenous Australians have long since had the right to vote, to be treated equally before the law, and every year receive more than $30 billion in government benefit. It's now up to $40,000 million. So why isn't this being acknowledged? And how do our children seem to have a totally different view from what is the truth? Well, Alan, uh, thank you
1: for having me on the show. And this is an issue we've spoken about many times before. And I was uh, fortunate enough about 40 years ago, 40 years ago, to do postgraduate work where I looked at what was happening in education across the Anglosphere, as I call it, but also more broadly what was happening in terms of culture, this rise of cultural Marxism, where the idea was to take the long march through the institutions, to overthrow what they saw as a capitalist society. Now, a lot of those people who became active back in the 70s and 80s at university, they went into teaching, they went into the media like the ABC, they went into politics, But the problem with education now, especially schools and universities, is that we have all of these older academics who've been there for over 30 years preaching their ideology. And in the curriculum, and I reviewed the curriculum, the Australian Curriculum 2014, that's what it's come to. It's about Aboriginal history, culture, spirituality, years prep to year 10 in all the subjects there's possibly four or five mentions of Christianity. That's correct. But that's correct. if you look at what's compulsory, it's Aboriginal history, that's correct. Aboriginal culture, that's correct.
0: And Aboriginal then, and spirituality. Now, and kids, that's absolutely right. I'll come to that in a minute. But, I mean, you have said to argue that any who say no to the voice being enshrined in the Constitution are racist and that the needs of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders are ignored, you say that is a simple untruth. And it is, but it's a very glamorous word, untruth. It's a lie. I think that's the word.
1: It's made worse by. Uh, I had a friend who went to in Victoria an English Teachers Association meeting earlier this year, and there were a couple of hundred English teachers there. You'd like to think, Alan, with our falling literacy rates, the appalling fact, so many are leaving school unable to read, to write, to know poetry. You'd like to think that's what the topic was, but this conference spent spent half the time talking about telling English teachers to say yes to the voice, to go back into the classroom, to tell children, students, to say yes to the voice. And the Australian Education Union, that's their policy. They want the curriculum in every school around Australia preaching what Albanese talks about, the vibe, the vibe, you know, share the love, do the right thing. Mm.
0: It's in our schools. It's in there every week, but I mean, what are, our pa- what are our parents doing about this? They've got to wake up. This is going on in the classroom. I mean, children are being indoctrinated in this welcome to country. You rightly call it, quote, a celebration where we are treated as strangers trespassing on our own land that we don't have the right to call Australia home. And this is what they're being taught in the classroom. Australia Day, no, 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 celebration, no, not tomorrow. No, that's Invasion Day. They're being taught this stuff.
1: Well, many parents my age and your age would remember, uh, it used to be Monday morning, every school around Australia yep. started with raising the flag. Yeah. There was the oath of allegiance. We swore uh, it was queen, country, God, respect, that word, respect teachers, an authority that went out the window many years ago because of the cultural left, this long March. So now they're taught welcome to country and you'd be lucky to have uh, anybody saluting the flag or getting a sense of patriotism. Yep. That's right. Because it's all about what Geoffrey Blaney, the mm. great historian talked about the black armband. It, here is. it is. We're strangers in our own land. I feel almost vomiting i want to be sick when yeah. i land in a Qantas plane yes. around australia and and they have this dirge welcome to country apparently i didn't realize this alan they own the sea
0: the land and the air mm. i didn't know the indigenous right. people owned the air as well see i mean you make the point and i've made it many times but we've got to repeat this stuff those who argue for invasion day Ignore the fact you say that, quote, the orders given to the colony's first Governor Philip were to treat Aborigines with respect and with kindness and to peacefully coexist. Now, even though a number of convicts were killed, Governor Philip refused to retaliate unless absolutely necessary. Our kids are not taught this. It's a matter of historical record, as you say, that Aborigines were, Aborigines were able to kill or severely wound 17 Europeans, including Governor Philip himself, with no loss to themselves. Children are not taught any of this stuff. Their minds are polluted because we are fermenting division by dividing the nation into two types of citizens. And you identify this. You say those who have a direct line to executive government to influence decision-making, and the 96% denied such preferential treatment. By the way, I note today, uh, Dr Kevin Donnelly, that the LGBTQI people are now saying, well, we want, we want a voice to government. They'll all be coming out of the woodwork, won't they? But this is the point. I mean, how do our kids, how do we make our kids aware of this? If the parents don't, it won't happen in the classroom. You're dead right, and uh, how many kids, I'd say none,
1: would know that when the First Fleet landed, as you say, Philip was ordered to coexist, there was to be no slavery, there was to be no retaliation, but also two of the books that arrived with the First Fleet, the Bible and the laws of, the common laws of England, Blackstone's Common Laws of England, that is the basis of our Western liberal democracy. Mm. The French arrived, as you know, in Botany Bay a week after Philip. Imagine if they'd arrived first. They were soon, you know, the French Revolution, Madame Guillotine. The fact is we've been settled by the British, the Irish, the Scottish. Mm. They, because of that, we have inherited one of the most peaceful, democratic, liberal governments and societies in the
0: world, world that's why millions... The world envies us. mean, millions after the war want to come and live here. I mean, I've already made the point tonight. Can some of these Indigenous activists actually say thank you for the benefits they enjoy? I mean, Jacinda Price has been arguing that we should not be romanticising Aboriginal culture and history before European settlement as some kind of Antipodean Garden of Eden and promoting a black armband view of European settlement. I mean, that is not the truth, is it? I mean, I think you've said pre-Dr Ge- D- Donnelly wrote this. Dr Donnelly wrote this, pre-European Aboriginal culture. That's prior to Governor Philip and the flag going up and so on. He says, like many other less developed cultures, was characterised by violence, ill health and inequality, especially for women. Today, that's denied by the... I was going to say, I was going
1: to say, if people read uh, What Contench, the Marine who landed with the First Fleet, or William Buckley, who was an escaped convict who settled in what near Geelong, down the peninsula there, they have first-hand accounts of how barbaric and cruel many of the Aboriginal tribes were. Yes, there correct. was intertribal warfare. Yeah. Women were treated appallingly. I mean, I don't know where the feminists are in all of this, why, why they don't yes. raise. Yes. I know, you know, Jacinta and, indeed, and in mother, the Northern territory they talk
0: about this in the... Yeah, but Kevin, taking that point up, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but in the Northern Territory, the violence is Indigenous Australian against Indigenous Australian. The violence is Indigenous men against Indigenous women.
1: And Jacinta Price, God bless her, and mm. her mother, uh, Bess Best, Price, yeah. they're, they're making this point all the time. Absolutely. And that's why, as you know, uh, many of the reporters... Uh, after hearing what Jacinta Price said at the press club last week, they had apoplexy that's because it. here was an Aboriginal woman, also of Celtic descent, who argued what they were afraid,
0: the, co- the, the left, the level who were saying yes, she is saying what they were afraid to recognise. That's it, that's it. That's it, I mean, she makes the point. Let's judge people, instead of the color of their skin, be judged according to their character and their willingness to embrace a future united by what we hold in common. Uh, Let me just go back, I'll, I'll just show this up for our viewers because Martin Luther King said this on August 28, 1963. This is 60 years ago, just have a look at this. I have a dream. Will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the colour of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream That was That was 1963, 60 mm. years ago, when he wanted young people judged on their character, not the colour of their skin. Yet in 2023, the Albanese government is seeking to divide Australia on the basis of the colour of their skin. I mean, what chance do our kids have, Kevin?
1: The other point there, uh, as we know, uh, Martin Luther King was a a minister, uh, I think a Baptist minister. He was. And I mentioned the Bible arriving with the first fleet. In the Bible it says that we are all made in God's image, Mm -hmm. and because of that we're all given inherent right to liberty, freedom, justice, but it's God-given Luckily, I mentioned Blackstone's Laws of England. That has enshrined that. So Mm. Magna Carta, the Glorious Revolution. Uh, When you go back through our history, which is never taught in our schools, if you go back through our history, you would understand the foundation is one that we should acknowledge and respect rather than trying to tear down. I, I know.
0: But, see, just to keep it very simple, it's only 18 months ago since we changed the national anthem. Australians let us all rejoice for we are one and free." Well, Anthony Albanese, through The Voice, is standing that oneness on its head, dividing the nation on the basis of race. It's pretty simple, isn't it, Kevin? We cannot Mm. accept a race-based change to the Constitution. But just finish on this note, could you just have a word to parents out there as to what concern they should have as to what their children are being taught in the classroom, and how parents should address it. Parents need to be aware.
1: As you're, you're, you're helping them. Obviously, uh, the parents watching this show. Parents need to be aware. They need to follow what their children are learning at school. If they're concerned, they should go up to the school, talk to the teacher or the principal. Teachers are their are their children's first teachers. Parents have a moral responsibility, rather, to look after their children. Their parents are the first teachers. So they need to be aware. They need to complain if it's wrong. And I will say that uh, I've got to know Senator Antic in Adelaide. He's actually been involved in this argument over the last year. Mm. And I think there are one or two... Uh, politicians, Definitely. Sarah Henderson, another one,
0: yes. uh,
1: shadow education federally, they're starting to pick up on this argument. Mm. I think they understand that in Florida, with DeSantis in Virginia, mm. uh, there are now Republican governors because parents have mobilized, That's parents right. need to get onto their politicians, get onto their schools. they the tomorrow and this will be a, a a
0: burning election
1: yep. issue at the federal it election It is. It is. I just, wish,
0: I just wish Peter Dutton would talk about this. I mean, the indoctrination that's going on instead of education and the pollution of young people's minds. Good to talk to you, Kevin Donnelly. You do wonderful, wonderful work and we're all grateful. Thank you for your time. He's the senior fellow at the Catholic University. But parents, 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 it's up to you. It's not going to get it from the teachers. Uh, perhaps you are of the left. Perhaps you're happy about the kids being told all this sort of stuff. I don't know. But I'll tell you what. I would be very worried if I were you. A mere two days ago, a story ended of a remarkable and almost unbelievable Australian entrepreneurial achievement, the death of Joy Chambers-Grundy. Joy, another victim to the scourge that is cancer. But the Chambers-Grundy stories are almost beyond belief. It began with the remarkable Reg Grundy, there's Reg and Joy there, who died in 2016 at the age of 92. Reg Grundy began as a window dresser in David Jones. He then took a job in radio at 2GZ Orange, then at 2SM in Sydney calling sport, and he'd always tell me that he knew nothing about sport. Then he was given a rugby league game to call, and he asked a mate of his to hold signs up on the sideline, forward pass, offside, so that Reg could say forward pass at the right time, and people listening marveled at how much he knew. Reg Grundy then conned his way into going to South Africa, to broadcast the Jimmy Carruthers-Vic Tawil world title fight. But the landline was down when the fight started and Reg had paid for all of this himself by gaining sponsors. So the fight was over in two minutes and 19 seconds. Reg had no fight to send back to Australia. Carruthers became Australia's first official world champion. But the first minute of the fight wasn't recorded, so Reg did the whole thing again from a studio and he made it up, the commentary up using sound effects from an American basketball game. He came home to Australia and joined radio station 2CH where he played middle-of-the-road music and then suggested a new radio show in the afternoons, maybe two to four, where he would ask questions and people would answer over the phone. So Wheel of Fortune was born. Reg was ahead of his time. He left 2CH and took the Wheel of Fortune idea to the brand new Australian TV network Channel Nine. Reg did a demo, he was told he was a bit green and a bit nervous, but he'd be given half an hour on Thursday afternoons for 13 weeks. And that's how it happened. Then came his second TV show, Concentration, and a third, Tic-Tac-Toe. But then in 1964, Channel Nine in Sydney told Reg Grundy they were dropping all his shows. Well, Reg went to Brisbane, where he continued production. He then made a trip to the United States to quote, get up close and personal with some American game shows. Back home, while he was working on another show, he met the Ipswich girl, Joy Chambers, who was one of 300 women to audition to become his golden girl. In October 1971, they were married. Reg started a daytime show called Temptation, which became a nighttime show, then became Great Temptation, which then became the sale of the century. And then it started. All Reg's ideas, class of 74, young doctors, restless years, Prisoner, Sons and Daughters, Waterloo Station, Neighbours. In the middle of all of this, he produced ABBA the Movie, which opened in November 1977. Reg was building a worldwide business worth at various times, up to billions of dollars. Grundy Worldwide had separate production companies in nations all over the world, and his game shows were often showing at the one time in 15 countries. Reg Grundy owned the whole shooting match. He financed the global expansion entirely on his own. He had no debt. We were great friends. He used to say to me he couldn't believe he was a kid who left school at 15, went to work at David Jones, people telling him he should be on radio, does a stint in the army, started in regional New South Wales radio where he played music and put news middletons together, called rugby league when he knew nothing about it, broadcast an international fight which he literally had to make up because the telephone line he'd booked had broken down, and then to virtually becoming the biggest independent television producer in the world. Well, Joy was always the stabilising force in his life. Reg used to make a lot of speeches and he'd always say, now you all know me, so when I start to cry, just talk amongst yourselves. He and I would always sing a couple of standard numbers, but the one he liked most was, I'll be loving you always, dedicated to Joy. That union on earth ended when Reg died in 2016. Then last sin Sunday, with the passing of Joy, the other wick in the lamp was extinguished. Joy started out as a television weather girl. There we are there at some gig. Television weather girl in Brisbane in the 1960s. Then came acting, Rosemary Daniels in Neighbours and Dr Robin Porter in The Young Doctors. And along the way, Joy won two Logie Awards. There was also a TV panel show called I Have a Secret, where Joy was chosen as host from 350 women. The show ran for five years. Joy worked as a production assistant on and wrote for numerous shows produced by the Grundy organisation. In 1983, Joy Chambers Grundy was elected to the board of Grundy Worldwide, the largest independent production and distribution company in the world. In that same year, Joy and Reg created a media company called RG Capital. Joy was the chairperson. Then in the early 1990s, Joy started what she described as her fifth career, writing. Her first novel, Mayfield, was published in 1992. In 1994, that was followed by My Zulu Myself. In 2000 came Vale Valhalla. In 2003, she released None But the Brave, which was a book described as a grand sweep of history covering 1919 to the Second World War and encompassing Britain, Europe and the Australian Bush. Joy called it a factional book, fact married with fiction. Amongst her characters, she placed real life figures like Winston Churchill, Nancy Wake and the flying ace Douglas Bader, all of whom Joy knew. Then came For Freedom, described as a wartime chronicle of sacrifice, suffering, compassion and joy. She did all the research herself before she put pen to paper and then computers and word processors. Joy Chambers is one of the few people whose works have been approved for inclusion in the British War Museum. Reg subsequently carved out a magnificent career as a wildlife photographer. Millions of shoots in every part of the world exposing himself to get the wildlife shot he wanted to danger fastidious about detail. Reg Grundy died in 2016 and very little was done to honour this giant in world entertainment. And now Joy Chambers Grundy, who loved Reg beyond description. One day I hope Australia will remember and recognise them both as they deserve to be remembered. Two of the greatest achievers in Australia's short history, the like of whom we may never see again. Reg Grundy was born in Sydney in 1923. He died in Bermuda in 2016. Joy was born in Ipswich in 1947 and died in Germany on Sunday, losing her battle with cancer. Reg and Joy are now united in death as they were in love. Two beautiful friends, never to be forgotten. As many of you know, I have a saying that no one ever dies until the memories fade away. The memories of Reg and Joy are perhaps more poignant now on this day than they have ever been. Look, I don't know for how many years I have been warning about the energy crisis, Bowen taking the nation over a cliff, a national economic suicide note, I've called it. Yesterday, we had this absurd outburst by Bowen trying to attack Peter Dutton on the costings for nuclear energy. I've made the point many times, by the way, that while a nuclear debate has a lot of merit, we should be worrying about the here and now. Under Bowen, we will not be able to meet our energy needs. We can't power this nation on renewable energy. But Bowen, in an irrational outburst, which is normally the end result of a stupid person finding himself in a corner from which he can't escape, Bowen said that the nuclear, pardon me, the nuclear plans of Dutton would cost $387 billion, a made-up number, but suddenly even Labor insiders saw this as a shocking blunder by Bowen and a total misrepresentation of Dutton's policy idea. There are two things at work here. Labor's long-held anti-nuclear stance is losing traction. And the second, which I've warned about, is that Bowen has no hope of reaching 82% renewables and 43% carbon dioxide reductions by 2030. You've heard me say that the carbon dioxide argument has no legs, it is monstrous to think that a gas which is 0.04% of the atmosphere, is doing the damage to climate that is being attributed to it. Nonetheless, Bowen's political hit job yesterday finished up landing straight on Bowen's arrogant jaw. Bowen also made the point that the coalition would force taxpayers to fully fund the construction of 71 nuclear small modular reactors, which of course is also rubbish. The Coalition was simply talking about converting existing coal-fired power sites into small modular reactors. But as I said, that is down the track. We've got to be focusing on the here and now. And under the here and now, the Bowen Energy Policy is a diabolical failure. And that is increasingly being evidenced around the world, especially in Europe, as it enters an uncertain winter. Dr Benny Pizer is the Director of the Global Warming Policy Foundation. Now, the aim of the foundation is to, and I quote, bring reason, integrity and balance to a debate that has become seriously unbalanced, irrationally alarmist, and all too often depressingly intolerant. Isn't that true? Dr. Penny Pizer joins me on the line from London. Dr. Pizer, thank you for your time. Look, we're swamped with this net zero rubbish here. You have argued as far back as last year that it is time to put net zero on ice and you've blamed high energy bills on net zero policies, labeling the energy crisis as the net zero cost crisis. Just explain that to our viewers because we've got to say this a thousand times before everyone understands it.
2: Um, Look, it's not that difficult to explain. Um, The most cost-effective, the cheapest forms of energy are and remain fossil fuels now because of global warming uh, the international community has um, essentially said that we have to decarbonize and that we have to keep uh, fossil fuels in the ground Um, although there are no binding agreements um, in europe and in most western countries This has led to a switch to more costly forms of energy and less reliable forms of energy, uh, like renewables, um, which are two or three times more expensive altogether than the cheapest form of energy. And uh, it's no surprise that energy prices have skyrocketed and are damaging economies Mm. in Europe and in the US. And um, in Australia, too. Yeah. So it's not a, it's, it, you know, everyone understands that if you uh, change from a cheap reliable form of energy to a more expensive and more unreliable form of energy, then your costs go up and your um, standards of living go down.
0: You mentioned a few things there that um, occupy the debate. Firstly, global warming. The globe, as you know, isn't warming as the alarmist would suggest. Then they talk about decarbonisation and they constantly mix up carbon with carbon dioxide. The issue is carbon dioxide but it's 0.04% of the atmosphere and human beings are responsible only 3% of 0.04%. I've said, this, I've said this a thousand times, but you make a very good point when you were asked about Western environmentalists advocating the use of renewable energy in Africa. This is a very good point and you said A lot of Africans are fed up with this kind of green virtue signaling and they're beginning to rely on themselves. So I think there will be increased opposition to this kind of renewed eco-colonialism and Africans will, just like countries like India and China are doing, rely on their own resources and decide for themselves what is best for them. So, Benny Pizer, Dr. Pizer, if then for they're going to burn fossil fuels and the problem is carbon dioxide from fossil fuels, uh, which I don't think it's a problem, but if that is the problem, then what the hell are we all beating ourselves around the head for when China and India and Africa are continuing on using fossil fuels? Nothing we can do will be able to change that. What are we on about?
2: Well, it's a good question, but it's actually worse um, as a result of the conflict in Europe with, with Russia and Ukraine, the, the Europeans are actually begging the Africans for oil and gas. So they are saying you should not use oil and gas because you should not you know, do the, the mistakes we did in the past, the way we got rich. You should not use it, but please sell it to us. The Europeans yes. are... Yes. crambling for African oil and gas. The hypocrisy hypocrisy is breathtaking. The hypocrisy
0: is breathtaking. I mean, you know we are an energy-rich country, yet here we are demonising coal and gas, closing down coal-fired power stations. What do you say to Australians about the folly of this?
2: Well, you want to go down that line and you want to elect a government that makes your life worse off, then you pay the price. That's all I could say. Everyone deserves the government they vote for. And if you vote for a government that uh, makes your life um, you know, a misery and your cost of living goes up, then you might want to reconsider. But uh, the reality is that, and that's now manifest in Europe, the whole, whole green agenda is essentially disintegrating in front of our noses as people mm-hmm. are struggling. Um, just to pay their their energy, yeah, bills, energy bills and yeah, no, you've uh, written you have written europe with its, you,
0: you have written dr paisa has written europe with its green obsession is making itself poorer as it is And Africans will increasingly look to Asia for investments, factories and technology. Europe is in many ways shooting itself in the foot with these green measures because they are losing friends around the world, they're making their economies less competitive and they are unable to help Africans where they need it most. I mean, Dr Pizer, that's exactly where we are in Australia. Um, You know a bit about these energy policies of Australia. You know about the Albanese government. You were out here recently. Uh, my, My viewers need to know when they're being belted over the head with this rubbish every day. They'd love to hear from someone like you who've seen the experiences in Europe. What are you saying to our viewers?
2: <laughs> what am I saying? Um, it's not sustainable, not economically, not politically. And it's just the question of time until a new government will come along and say, we can't continue like this. We can't um, punish our own population. We are an energy-rich country and Australia should use the resources it has brilliant. Um, sensibly, responsibly, but uh, the way Australia is going, it will end up like Europe as a kind of high-energy, poor-quality country.
0: Uh, Dr Paisley, you make the brilliant point that, quote, denying the world's poor, the very basis on which Britain and much of Europe became wealthy, largely due to due to cheap coal, oil and gas amounts to an inhumane and atrocious attempt by green activists to sacrifice the needs of the world's poor on the altar of climate alarmism. I'd love to know how your critics answer that comment.
2: They can't. Well, they don't because they don't want to discuss or debate, so basically they just repeat Um, It's all going to be fine. We will invent our way out of this. Eventually, we will find the technologies in the future that uh, will solve all the problems we're currently having. Um, They're not really discussing any criticism. And so, therefore, we don't have a proper debate, which is the biggest problem we have. Because at the end of the day, it requires scrutiny and debate to find a reasonable way forward in a, you know, what is um, no doubt a challenging situation, but we need Mm. proper scrutiny, proper debate Mm. to find the best way forward.
0: It's hard to believe that intelligent people, though, are going down this track. I can't understand Mm -hmm. it. I mean, you make the point I should make to our viewers. Uh, Dr. Betty Pizer makes the point, he's not a climate scientist, this bloke, and he's never claimed to be one. He said, quote, my interest is in how climate change is portrayed as a potential disaster and how we respond to that. That's why I'm speaking to him. Surely the portrayal of climate change being a disaster is a hoax. I mean, you say, quote, lamentably, there are many climate change researchers who've exaggerated the potential health risks due to global warming while magnifying the probable risks of health and mortality as a result of warmer temperatures. Many underrate or simply ignore the possible health benefits of moderate warming. I mean, carbon dioxide is the source of all plant life. We're never told that. They want to talk about carbon, which is the stuff coming out of those smokestacks. I mean, the debate is really dishonest, surely.
2: Well, the problem is that there is no debate. Yeah, that's (laughs) true. So that is the biggest problem. And um, I'm not claiming to know the ins and outs of climate science or the climate system which is extremely complex and I'm making no strong claims on the climate science issue but what I certainly believe is that there's a lack of scrutiny, there's a lack of proper discussion within the scientific community and it's the people shouting loudest and screaming fire that are basically um, eliminating any other voice of caution Absolutely. and of balance. And Absolutely. that's the problem. Absolutely. And they won't debate. These people won't come on this
0: program, uh, Benny Pizer. We're talking now endlessly in this country every other day, do you mind, about wind farms and solar panels all over the place. And you make the point, and I quote you, the more wind farms we have, the more expensive the energy costs. You say there is no evidence that these wind turbines are getting cheaper, and a lot of evidence to show the more of them we have, the higher the costs. And in relation to solar panels, you make the point, perhaps in the Sahara, where no-one lives, having these huge tens of miles of solar panels may make sense. Obviously, they don't work at night they leave a huge ecological footprint. Now, in all this global warming debate, Dr Benny Pizer, about climate change, renewable energy stuff, there has been no risk analysis whatsoever of solar panels. You say they're not adequately recycled, quote, often old panels are not recycled, just dumped, dig a hole, dump them, cover the hole. The countries with a lot of sun, particularly in the developing world, don't have the recycling facilities and they don't really care. None of this is discussed and there's not even an opportunity to have that discussion, is there?
2: Well, we know that renewables, because they generate so little electricity compared to a proper power plant, have a huge environmental footprint, so in other words you need huge amounts of land, countryside, um, areas to cover wind farms or solar farms, so the impact of these huge farms is enormous on the environment and of course um, those negative impacts are never really properly assessed or acknowledged. Um, But that's not really the main problem with renewables. The main problem is that you cannot power an industrial society, a developed society on renewables. Uh, That simply doesn't work. You need all the kind of infrastructure and all the backup, which is extremely expensive, which is why energy prices are so high in Europe. Mm. Uh, You've got
0: winter coming up in Europe. You were in Australia recently and you made the point that, quote, most Australians are clearly unaware of the disastrous energy crisis and energy cost crisis in Europe. I mean, surely we're ignorant of our own risk. I mean, you've made the point energy bills in the UK have nearly doubled in the last 12 months. You say they're threatening to triple by the end of the year. It's estimated that a quarter of UK households won't be able to pay their energy bills. You say we're facing the worst energy crisis since World War II. Dr Benny Pizer, when are people going to wake up? I mean, they are in the Netherlands, for example. They they marched in the streets, didn't they? And they woke woken up in Sri Lanka. But I mean, when are the Brits going to wake up? When are the Aussies going to wake up?
2: They are beginning to wake up uh, because it's beginning to hurt. The pain is now being felt and let me make a prediction um next year there will be european elections there will be a huge rebellion of voters about these policies and for the first time ever uh, we might actually have a majority in the european Parliament that is critical about the Green Agenda.
0: Wonderful, wonderful. That's good news. Last time he was in April, Dr Benny Pi here in Australia, Dr Benny "I said Auss- Aussies would be well advised not to follow our disastrous path. Australia has some insulation from this peril because it's blessed with enormous fossil fuel resources that are buffering our economy. But at the end of the day, the time is running out. Dr. Betty Pizer, we'll talk to you again. Lovely to talk to you. Just so know that people like Bowen and Albanese and co want to demonize coal and shut down coal and gas. So we might need your help somewhere down the track. (laughs) I don't know where we're going, but we've got to keep up the fight. Great to talk to you and thank you for your insights.
2: Thank you for having me,
0: Alan. Not at all there is Dr Betty Pizer talking to us from London. Will we learn from all of this? That is policy, close down coal and gas. Dr Pizer says policymakers, he just made this point, but he wrote, policymakers face punishment if they try to quickly shut them down. So that's our hope, but it's all very well. Where is the side saying the sorts of things that we're saying? Peter Dutton, you've got to be out there. Stop talking about nuclear, that's down the track. You have to say we will not demonise coal and gas. We will not put the energy future of our country at risk. We will not put the business potential of our country at risk and we'll not actually impose upon consumers and households the kind of pain that is coming as a result of Chris Bowen. Before we go, I'm always grateful for the comments of my viewers. As you know, those of you who have been listening to me for years, I argue that my viewers, my listeners are my best researchers. John has reminded me that we should learn from the mistakes of others rather than repeat them. And then we must avoid learning the hard way through bitter experience. Argentina, he said, followed the corporist road, big corporations in bed with big government, their economy today, Argentina is a basket case. So as I've said many times, and I said again today, tonight, we have top companies in bed with the Albanese government supporting the S campaign. Does that mean we are well down the road to another corporatist train wreck, another economic ruin, another Argentina? We need some political leader, hopefully Peter Dutton, to argue simply that every Australian today enjoys unprecedented prosperity that's been created through the hard work of those who preceded us. Why don't we celebrate that and acknowledge it? America have Thanksgiving Day. We need Thanksgiving. Why don't we give thanks, which is the point I made earlier about indigenous activists. Just give thanks for what we have, the envy of the world, instead of bruising one another about a yes vote, which is nothing but a window dressing push for indigenous power. How can directors of public companies face their shareholders and tell them that company funds have been squandered to please the latest government boondoggle? A boondoggle is a wasteful, unnecessary and fraudulent project. Here is corporate Australia supporting the latest government boondoggle, the yes vote. Why? Oh, to buy favour with the government. What is the old axiom? Time to stop feeding the crocodiles in the hope that they'll eat you last. Time to regain our national sovereignty and become energy self-sufficient. Time to acknowledge the people who've built this country that we enjoy today. Time to get on with the job of leaving Australia even better for those who follow, which means time to recognise that carbon dioxide feeds plants that feed us and that net zero is a political nonsense, a playground for charlatans and opportunists. A charlatan, I might add, is a person who falsely claims to have special knowledge. Bowen is a charlatan. Ron Barassi wasn't. Ron Barassi died last Saturday. Ron Barassi has been a constant in the Australian football fans' lives for the past seven decades. Larger than life, larger than the game. He played in six premierships for Melbourne. Ron Barassi coached Carlton for two, leading Carlton from the bottom of the ladder to the centre of the Victorian football universe. North Melbourne begged him to lift the impoverished club and he did, two premierships. When Sydney Swans won their last legs, they called upon the great Barassi to leave his pub in Melbourne and revive the club. Ron Barassi was everywhere if you were an Australian rules fan in the 50's, 60's, 70's, 80's and 90's. He died last Saturday. A light has gone out in the home of Australian rules football. Stories will be told forever. He could berate, he could urge. He could engender a response where players dug deep and found the kind of spirit that coursed through his playing veins. Ron Barassi, humble, a man of the people, a kind word for everyone demanding no special treatment for himself. While others are easily forgotten, Barassi will be long remembered. However, I can't help but feel that we should have said all of these things while he was alive. Well, that's it from me tonight. I hope you've enjoyed the program. Thank you for being with us. You can listen to tonight's program on the app from 6am tomorrow. Just search Alan Jones. Thank you for being with ADH. I am Alan Jones and good night.